Church podcast. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, allowed his advisors to attempt to murder the prophet Jeremiah. But an Ethiopian eunuch in Zedekiah's court was able to change the king's mind, and Jeremiah was rescued before he died. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series The Book of Acts, Growth Against All Odds, with this sermon entitled Destructive Grace, which covers Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in to Acts chapter 8 today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for who you are. And thank you that you, in all of your holiness and splendor, and all of your majesty, you are also near. You are near to the brokenhearted. You are present here among us even now. You dwell within the hearts of your people. You empower us. You teach us. You give us wisdom. You give us insight. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning, would you do that? Would you do just that? Would you give us wisdom and perspective? Open our eyes and ears to see and hear the beauty of who you are, Christ, the grace of your gospel. So we give this time to you. We ask you to bless it. And, oh, Lord, would you use me as your vessel of truth? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First time I can ever remember playing in a golf tournament. I was young. I would guess fifth or sixth grade, somewhere in there. And uh, we played it at this little golf course outside of my little town, Twin Pines Country Club, the only country club uh, in the vicinity. And we held this, this uh, youth four-man scramble, but it ended up being more of a, each group was more like six instead of four because we had so many kids that signed up for it. And so here I am playing in my ter- first tournament with five other guys in my group, And I happen to be the smallest and the youngest in my group, which meant that I could hit from the women's tee. All the other guys in the group had to hit from the men's tee, but I get to hit from the women's tee. And you would think I would be ashamed of that, but I was actually pumped about that because that meant that I got to be the hero all day long, right? I I would hit the longest drive every single time. And I wasn't great at golf, but I had confidence in my ability and probably that was not um, that was not a good thing because, see, what had happened was, um, <laughs> first hole, things go fine. They actually don't use one of my shots, but I don't embarrass myself. Second hole comes around and everything falls apart. Everybody on the first tee from the men's tee, no one hits a good drive. No one gets it past the women's tee. So here I am, everybody's looking at me. It's my turn to win the day, right? I tee my ball up. I'm ready to just crush this ball and be the hero. I take my swing back. I come through probably harder than I ever have on a golf ball. I actually keep good playing. I'm speaking golf speak as though I know what I'm talking about. Club face is straight. I hammer the tee because I had teed it too high. And the tee, ball straight up and straight back down at my feet. It was a pop fly, which is never good in any sport. Everybody laughs. I laugh as well because I don't want to be embarrassed, you know, too bad. So if you laugh at yourself, it's not as bad, but I'm, I'm really, really embarrassed. And so the oldest guy in the group, the guy that's the coolest guy, the guy that's a year older than me, biggest, strongest in the group, everybody wanted to be him. He was good at golf. He walks over to me and I'm hoping and thinking he's going to say something like, hey man, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We've all done that before. Uh, you know, 
next, next one's yours and don't worry about it. But instead he walks over to me and he says, hey, thanks for blowing it for us. You should have gotten your putter out and tried to roll it up there. <laughs> he had a point, but I, it absolutely crushed me. I was devastated. And not only because he said that, but because all the other guys in the group heard it. He's the cool one. I'm not. They all jumped on his side. And for 16 and a half more holes, no one spoke to me. I was completely, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm just still bitter about it all these years later, but no, I mean, I don't need your pity. Okay. No, but, but here's the reality. I was completely rejected for something as superficial and, and silly is whether or not I could hit a golf ball well. And in that moment, every guy in the group decided you're not in, you're not one of us because you didn't do something well, because you didn't perform to the standard that we would say, hey, we accept you. And you hear that and you go, wow, man, kids can be ruthless. And then I say back to that, yes, but have you been around adults? Have you seen how we do life? Have you been a part of the standards that we draw? The, 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 uh, the silly superficial things that we put in place that immediately determine whether somebody's in or out, whether they're accepted or rejected. We do it all the time. We have all kinds of standards that we put out there that call for immediate rejection or acceptance, depending on what those standards may be. And we do it in all kinds of ways, but the two that are most common, the ones that most fall under these two categories are that of performance and appearance. That based on some type of performance, you're either accepted or rejected. Of course, athletic, we know that to be true in the story I just shared. And, and for many years, uh, the way I did college ministry and the way that I actually got a foot in the door with college ministry is that I would go to the rec center on campus and I'd play basketball and I, I was decent at basketball. And so I'd win the approval of these guys, not because I actually got to know them or they got to know me, but because I was good at a sport and they thought that was cool. And so then if I approached them, they thought, oh, the guy that's good at basketball is talking to them. And how stupid is that, right? How silly is this, that, that that's the way we function. But we do it with all kinds of things. Athletically, we do it academically. We do it socially. We determine standards within the way we interact with each other that automatically define whether you're popular or not popular, whether you're in, whether you're out. We do it with moral and moral issues and immoral issues. We like to draw defining lines, barriers, if you will, standards that define people, whether we know them or not. Appearance is all over the place. How you appear to someone, we can look at someone and we are all guilty of this. Every single one of us, myself included, we look at someone and without speaking to them, knowing them, understanding them, moving towards them in any shape, form or fashion, we have decided whether they are in my group or not. Are they with me? And we can, we can draw that conclusion in a matter of seconds based on appearance. This is how we function. This is the nature of the human heart. This is our disposition and it's a result of the fall. It's a result of the sin nature within us. And let me tell you where it lands us. Where we land because of this struggle, because of this reality, is we land in a place of fear. If we're totally honest about our insecurities, here's what we would articulate. We would say, I am fearful that there is something about me that doesn't allow me to be accepted by you. We all have that fear. 
whether we're willing to admit it or not, that exists in every single one of us. And because it exists in every single one of us horizontally with human relationships, we by default then begin to press that in vertically and assume it's the same with God. And we live with this fear that perhaps there is something about me. There is something about me that prevents me from being accepted by God. And the message of the gospel of grace throughout the scriptures and certainly in this passage we're going to look at today is that the answer is that there is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing that prevents you and me from being accepted into the kingdom of God. The only thing that prevents us is unbelief. Rejection through our unbelief in Jesus, that he is the one who wins our acceptance, who wins our approval for us in his finished work for us. So let's look at the text and I'll give more thought and input into where I've started us off here this morning. We're jumping into the second half of the book uh, of the chapter of Acts, uh, chapter eight of Acts. Now, let me catch you up on where we've been. We're skipping the first half of the chapter, but where we ended last week is we ended with uh, the conclusion of chapter seven, where Stephen became the first martyr of the church. He was killed for his faith. He was brutally stoned to death by those who were enraged, the Jewish people who were enraged over his preaching of the gospel, that all of who they are and their history and all of the the history of Israel was pointing to Jesus. He is the long-promised Messiah, deliverer, savior, rescuer, and you have rejected him, nation of Israel. Uh, And so they hear this, they are enraged, they stone him to death, and they think that they're doing this because in so doing, it will thwart the continued spread of this gospel of Jesus. And in fact, it does the opposite As we know from the famous saying uh, from the early church, says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so we know that it's actually in persecution that the church most oftentimes grows and spreads. And so we pick up in chapter eight and the gospel is continuing to spread. And now it's spreading through this disciple, this follower of Christ named Philip. And Philip is an evangelist. He's sharing the gospel with everybody and he's actually now in a new territory geographically. And what's happening in Acts chapter eight is the fulfillment of Acts chapter one, verse eight. When Jesus, before ascending into heaven, said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so what was gonna be happening that Jesus predicted is that the gospel of his good news was gonna be growing in ever enlarging circles. And where Philip's taking the gospel now is to that next part, the Samarian, the, the uh, Samaritans, which the Jews hated. The Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were, were half-breeds. They had interwed with Gentiles. And so they were kind of Jewish, but not really. And the Jewish people hated them. And so the gospel's going forth to a people that are their enemies. And they're receiving the gospel with joy. And the church is growing. And Philip, being sensitive to the spirit, continues to take the gospel to places that it hasn't been yet. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 26. I mean, chapter eight, verse 26 says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Let me just make a couple of mentions along the way. Uh, The road that 
Most likely Philip is traveling here is an old desolate road that used to be the main road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Gaza is in the southwest kind of portion of Israel. Even today, what we hear is the Gaza Strip, same place that kind of borders up to Egypt and into the Red Sea in that area. And this was Philistine territory. This is where the, the Philistines had their uh, their rule and their reign and their kingdom uh, all throughout the Old Testament history. When you read about the Philistines, this is where this is going on. And they had five major cities and Gaza was one of those major cities. But Alexander the Great in previous years had actually destroyed the city of Gaza. And after it was destroyed and they began to rebuild it, they built a new road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the old road was traveled sparsely because it was not kept up. But in the original text, it seems to indicate that what God is calling Philip to do is to go down the old road. So when it says this is a desert place, that's what it's insinuating. Yes, it's desert land in general, but it's a really deserted place. But do you notice what Philip does? It says he rose and he went. Don't you know there's many times in our lives where God is calling us to go to places that we go, why would you be calling me to go there or, or do that or move in that direction when this seems so much more logical, but yet God is calling me there, so okay, I'll follow. And so he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Let me just give you a quick insight into what's going on here. This is a black African man, an Ethiopian. Don't think modern day Ethiopia, okay? If you see Africa on a map and you're looking at Ethiopia where it is today, you're off. That's not where, you, where we need to be. Where Ethiopia was in that day is it was a, gener a generic term for land, the land that was south uh, of Egypt. So if you go up the Nile, which on a map looks like we're going down the Nile, but you go south of Egypt, these were a Nile people living on the river there. And this is the ancient kingdom of Cush in your Old Testament. Okay, and this is what Jews refer to and the people of Israel refer to as Ethiopians. Okay, and so this man is a eunuch. Just to be blunt, and so we know eunuch, if you're not understanding what that term means, it means it's a castrated man, usually not by choice. Usually if you're in the, in the court of the queen, that usually uh, eunuchs had uh, oversight over the harem for the king. So in order to make sure that there was no temptation there, they would castrate the man. And so it's usually not by choice, but with it comes great stereotype and great labeling that, you'll, that I'll talk about in just a moment. But even despite that, this was a man of great stature. He had a prominent place in the queen's court and he was over her whole entire treasury. Okay, now Candace is not a first name of someone. It is in our day and time, but not back then. Candace was actually a title for the Ethiopians that was passed down, uh, the, the title of the queen basically that was passed down generation after generation, whoever was ruling over that kingdom in that day. Listen to what it says though. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, which means he's a Jew. He has, he has been a follower, has become a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one, uh, he is a follower of the one true God. Now, this could have happened as a part of his 
uh, ancestors becoming believers generations and generations before of the one true God because 500 plus years earlier, Babylon had come in and ransacked and, and overthrew Israel and Jerusalem and took the Israelites into captivity. And that began a dispersion that really went to the ends of the known world at that point. And so very likely there were Jews who ended up way down there in Ethiopian land who then probably began to talk about this one true God. And so very likely maybe this man's ancestors had become Jews long, long time ago, or maybe perhaps he embraced the faith in his own life uh, at some point along the way. But nevertheless, he has, he has taken a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. Now, what's interesting about that is that he's a eunuch. Luke tells us five different times Five different times in, the, in this text, he, he makes sure that we know that he's a eunuch. He never even tells us his name, but he tells us five times that he's a eunuch. With no doubt to emphasize the point that this man did not have full access, full acceptance into the lot of Israel, that he could not enter the temple and worship the way a Jewish person, a fully Jewish person would worship. And this was based on Deuteronomy 23.1, where God had laid out in the law that uh, as a part of, uh, of the purity that is to be held within the temple and the place of worship, that eunuchs were not allowed to participate fully in temple worship. And so they're just administering the law. However, they were pushing it into spaces that, um, that were beyond the law. They were as the Jews were doing in the time of Jesus, they were taking the law and making it more than what it was. So here's a man being faithful to his God who's traveled great distance to worship at the temple, but his experience of worship would be similar to that of us showing up for worship here. And based on appearance and based on cultural norms, we would say, hey, we're glad you're here, but you've got to stay in the lobby while we come in here and worship. That was his experience in the temple. And so feeling rejected, feeling isolated, feeling as though he's an outsider, feeling as though he does not have full acceptance, he's on his way back and look what he's doing. Verse 20, uh, 28, he was returning, seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now in the original language, it's a little bit more direct than that. It says, go over and overtake his chariot. Go over and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? I want you to see what's happening here. Uh, the chariot, imagine like a decked out gold, probably, uh, you know, plated uh, covered wagon type thing, but just, you know, on steroids. It looks amazing. And here's Philip, this man of, I mean, this Ethiopian, this man of status who's up there reading aloud which was very common in that day. Very few people, if any, read silently to themselves. Isaiah 53, as we'll read in just a moment, which is the passage of prophecy about the suffering servant who we now know is, to, is Jesus, that he suffered on behalf of the sins of the people, the impurities of God's people. But the chariot's moving. I want you to see the, the eagerness of Philip, the evangelist, to share the gospel with someone. Uh, he doesn't, there's no indication in the text that, that the Spirit of God says to him, hey, run after that chariot. And he goes, say what now? You want me to, you want me to just like make a fool of myself running next to a chariot? Men in that day didn't run. But the chariot's moving and he runs. And I want you to see it. I mean, he's running next to this chariot. He's like, hey, 
Do you understand what you're reading? He said, it's up onto the chariot. And the, I mean, don't you know that this, this Ethiopian is like, well, oh, where did you come from? And, and he says, no, listen to what he says. He says, I don't understand. He says, how can I? Verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Don't you know that he's feeling, he's just left a place where he feels like justice has been denied him. And it's not just the place of the temple, it's his whole life. He's been labeled his entire life as one who doesn't fit in. Who one, one is not accepted. And he's reading in Isaiah 53 and he's pouring over it and he's reading it aloud and he's trying to understand who is this about? And Philip, I love this verse, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he, this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Meaning, okay, he began with that scripture, but he didn't stay there. And don't you know that he turned over at one point to Isaiah 56? And he probably, as he was leading him through Isaiah, he gets him over to Isaiah chapter 56, if I can get there. And he says this, he says, hey, I want you to hear something. This, this Isaiah 53 is about this Jesus who has come. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who has taken upon himself the injustice so that you and I could be justified. He is the one who has taken upon himself the impurity so that you and I could be pure. He's the one who's taken upon himself the uncleanliness so that you and I can be clean. And, and listen, this was promised long ago, just three chapters later, verse three, it says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I don't want to be graphic, but there's no pun intended there. Like, or maybe there is a pun intended there. Look, what you have experienced and being cut off, you will not experience that in the land of the living. You will not experience this in the kingdom of God because the standards that have been in place that humans love to use as reasons to reject, I actually use as reasons to accept. There are no barriers in the kingdom of God. There is full and total invitation to come as you are and to receive the grace that is yours fully and completely in Jesus. And this eunuch hears the gospel and he sees the beauty of Jesus laid out before him in the scriptures and look at how he responds. They were going along the road, verse 36, and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. Philip had probably explained baptism to him in the Christian way. And he asked this question because this has been this question his whole life. What prevents me from being baptized? Is there anything that prevents me? And it doesn't even tell us in the, in the scripture that Philip answered no, because it was so obvious. The answer is a resounding no. You believe upon the Christ, you're in grace. 
And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which is where Philip happened to live. I wanna give you very quickly three things, just to, I'll move quickly through these three. But I just want you to see what's happening in this story of grace for the Ethiopian. The first one is this, there's acceptance into the kingdom of God across racial lines. This is a man that in Israel who would have stood out like a sore thumb because of his appearance. He would have been labeled because of his appearance. And what we see happening, what we see happening in the book of Acts, what we see happening in the early church is a new standard is being set in place for what the church is to appear like. What is it to look like? How are we to be seen among the nations? And the short answer is this, as the gospel goes forth, And as it is spread to every tongue, tribe, and nation, the church gathered is to look like the kingdom in fullness. And that as we gather together as God's people, as we do life together, there are no racial lines. This is the standard that God was setting from the very beginning of the early church. And I don't have to tell you, it's been well-documented. We have blown that standard in the American church for a couple of centuries now. And we're moving into a place of saying, oh God, would you do what only you can do and uniting a people together who according to the world's standards and lines that we draw would never be together. But in Christ we are. And in Christ we're not just together, we're in fellowship together. We're united to one another, we're with one another. We're on each other's team in such a way to where Jesus is being glorified and the world looks. And in all the ways in which political agendas are trying to force and make integration and whatever else happen and racial unity happen, it actually happens in the way it's supposed to happen within the church in a way that spreads throughout the world because it is unique and it is different and it's not based on legislation, it's based on Jesus. And it's based on the word of God doing what only God's word can do. Acceptance also comes into the kingdom of God despite cultural barriers. Despite cultural barriers. This man was a eunuch, as I've said so, so many times now, but what that meant is that the world saw him as unclean. The Jews saw him as unclean. We struggle as a people of God dealing with our uncleanliness. We think we are too unclean. We think we are a a people that there's something about us, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's something about us that keeps us from being accepted before God. This is perhaps maybe our biggest struggle is that even though we may know the the gospel that says there's nothing that separates us from the love of God, we still struggle with it. As we battle sin in our lives, we still feel as though, we still feel as though there's something that must be there that 
that doesn't allow me to be accepted because, because I'm just so unclean. And what the gospel calls us back to over and over and over again is that you are not the one who cleans yourself. Jesus is the great cleanser. He is the one who cleans the unclean. He is the one who, who calls out of darkness people into the light. He is the one who purifies the impure. This was actually a, a, a law in the Old Testament of eunuchs not being able to participate in worship because of their uncleanliness. It wasn't a, a moral or immoral issue. It was a cleanliness issue. It was a purity law. You know what happened on the cross? The once and final atonement made for man is that all impurities are wiped away for those who believe in Jesus once and for all. He was made impure on our behalf so that we could be seen and counted as pure. We struggle with this. We think that in some ways we've got to get ourselves together before we come to God. And in ways that Little children go out in the backyard in the middle of a rainstorm and get muddy from head to toe and then realize, oh goodness, I've got to go stand before mom and dad. I got to do something. And they try their hardest to clean themselves off, but all they're doing is just rubbing the dirt around in a way that just presses it in deeper and makes it worse. And they come before mom and dad and they go, what are you doing? Let me clean you. It's the same word of, clean, of cleanliness to us that Jesus gives us. What are you doing? Stop with all the performance. Stop trying to get yourself together. I am the cleanser. I will make you pure. One last thing I want you to see is that acceptance into the kingdom of God most often comes through scriptural study. This Ethiopian eunuch, man, he was, he was pursuing deeply the words of scripture. He was... He was trying, he was curious, just trying to understand the word. And it's oftentimes when we approach the word with humility, with eagerness to learn, that God speaks to us and that he reveals to us the truth of our need for Jesus and the truth of the gospel over us. Uh, we are living in perhaps, at least in the modern era, in the most biblically illiterate times, maybe since the Middle Ages, People don't know the Bible. People don't want to even read the Bible. And people who think they know the Bible and want to tear it apart have never approached it from a standpoint of humility of saying, oh God, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. Would you teach me if you in fact are real? Calvin actually said that one of the things that stood out to him, John Calvin, and as he was commenting on this passage, said that one of the things that was just amazing was how the Ethiopian acknowledged his ignorance freely and frankly He goes on to say, that is also why the reading of scripture bears fruit with such a few people today because scarcely one in a hundred is to be found who gladly submits himself to the teaching of it. There's an act of humility that comes with reading the scriptures. You don't check your brain at the door. But as Calvin said, there's, we have to drop the swollen headed confidence that we have in our own abilities to explain things. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, the Holy Spirit rides the chariot of scripture and not the wagon of modern thought. You don't have to be ignorant to be a Christian. That's not the implication here at all. But do we hold the scriptures and do we approach the scriptures in the way that the scriptures teach us to? 
And do we see over and over and over again that it's the word of God that often leads us to repentance? This is a story of grace for this Ethiopian man. This is a story of grace that calls us out of fear. That in all the ways that we resonate with him, is there something that prevents me? Is there, any, is there something about that prevents me from being accepted by God? This is a story of grace, but I wanna just take just a moment before we come to the table to, to perhaps maybe give a little bit of a clear, uh, maybe broader in implication definition of grace. Oftentimes we've defined grace. When we talk about grace, we say this. We say grace is, is undeserved merit. It's us getting what we don't deserve. And I would say, yes, it is that, absolutely. What do we deserve because of our sin and God is holy and he's a just God? What do we deserve? Well, if he's gonna stay true to his character as a holy God, he has to punish sin. And so we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. But what do we get if you believe upon Jesus? As our substitute is the one who's done the work for us, we get forgiveness, we get righteousness, we get declared to be uh, sons and daughters of God, receiving all that is his, both now and in eternity. So here's how I would define grace. I would just expand it just the slightest bit. I would say it's not just that we get what we don't deserve. I would say it is that we get the exact, complete opposite of what we deserve. And let me illustrate it by saying this. I've, I've alluded before, uh, my story, my freshman year in college was just a train wreck on so many levels. Um, I, I went to college and lost my mind in so many ways, emotionally, spiritually, academically for sure. I thought I was cool. Okay, there's the keyword thought. And so with that, with that thought of coolness, my roommate and I, we had this motto that we lived with our freshman year, which is we don't do math. <laughs> we thought we were cool. We don't do math, right? And so you get to the end of the semester and we literally had just not really done math. You get to the end of the semester and I had a 68, which side note, for not doing math, 68 is not too bad if I, if I say so myself. However, <laughs> I gotta have a 70 to pass. Okay, I gotta have a 70 to pass or I gotta take the class again. And so I look up my teacher uh, where her office is because surely I didn't know that. And I go find her office and, and determine her office hours. And I go into uh, when she's gonna be there and I go and I find her and I walk into her room. She invites me in and I say, Miss so-and-so, um, I have a 68 in your class. Is there anything I can do to get two more points to get up to a 70 to where I don't have to take the class again? Is there anything I do extra credit, whatever you want? She doesn't say a word. She pulls out a sticky note pad and she writes the number 28 on the pad and puts it in front of me. And she says, Mr. Norris, do you know what that is? What that number represents? I said, no, ma'am. She said, that's how many times you did not come to my class this semester. <laughs> I told you we didn't do math. Um, <laughs> then without saying another word, she takes the sticky note, another sticky note, writes the number 31 on it, puts it on the desk in front of me, slaps it down there in front of me, says, Mr. Norris, do you know what that number is? I had an idea, but I said, I don't, no, ma'am, I don't. She said, that's how many classes we had this semester. She said, you came to three of my classes. I will not be doing anything for, for you. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I took my 68 and went home. <laughs> now, why do I tell you that? Here's why I tell you that. I think in my own experience and as I've talked with so many people over the years, I think that we just don't get grace because what we think we bring to the table is we think we bring a 68 to the table. We acknowledge, yes, I need a savior. Yes, I'm sinful. Um, yes, I know I need Jesus, but I mean, kind of, look, I, I don't really do the religious thing, but look, I got a 68 here. 
I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, you got to say, God, there's not so much bad here, but I admit, okay, I need Jesus. I need a savior, but I need you, Jesus, to just kind of get me from the D range to the C range, get me into the seventies and then I'll be all right. And then I'll show you the rest of my life, how I was worth that investment, right? I'm going to continue to morally perform in a way to where I don't fall back into the sixties because I'm afraid that there's still something that doesn't fully get me in or not. And so if you'll get me into the seventies, I'll just, I'll live the rest of my life showing you that I, that I'm, that I'm good. And we call that the gospel and the Lord laughs because that's not the gospel. The gospel is if my teacher had taken the notepad and write, written 100 on it and slapped it in front of me. Or even before I get to that point, I didn't go to one class. I didn't take one test. I didn't study one note. I didn't buy the textbook. I didn't do anything so much so that my incapability was shouting to the rooftop such that I walked into the class or into her office with a zero. Nothing could I bring to the table. And she lays that 100 and slaps it in front of me. And she says, Mr. Norris, do you know what that number represents? No, ma'am, I don't. That's your grade in this class. Why? Grace. How? I took the test for you. Really? I, I thought I brought something to the table. You don't bring anything to the table. I don't bring anything to the table. It doesn't matter how good we think we are because of sin. We are bankrupt. And God has not done enough to get us from D to C. He has taken us from absolutely complete wrath and judgment to full and total 100% acceptance. Is there anything that prevents me from being accepted into the kingdom of God? Absolutely nothing. Simply believe on the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus in your place. He took the test for you. That's what the table's all about. It's about this immeasurable, incomprehensible, overwhelming, too good to be true, seemingly grace that is ours in Jesus. As we come to this table, I do want to encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never believed upon him by faith, I would encourage you not to take these elements, not because we want you to feel excluded, but because the scripture warns us to examine your heart, to see if you are actually a follower of Christ. And if not, then if you take these elements, the scripture says you're actually eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And I would say for the believer, for those who have believed upon Christ, but perhaps you're in this season where there is just great lack of repentance in your life and you know your heart is incredibly hard and you do not want to repent. And the Lord needs to work on you in that. I would say, take this time to pray about that instead of taking the elements. But let me be clear, this table is for sinners. This table is for those who can't get it together. This table is for those who deeply know that they need Jesus, that he has done all the work. And this is a means of grace that, God's give, that God gives us, not only as a reminder, but as a source of nourishment to our souls, that as we take these elements that represent his broken body and his blood, that we were reminded afresh we are renewed afresh. We are rejuvenated afresh that he is all we need. Father, we pray that as we come to this table,
that we would be, we would be okay with our neediness, that we would be okay with the reality that we are in greater need of your grace than perhaps we even realized. Father, that we would recognize that in some ways we have propped our goodness up before you as, a, as something that we think you're impressed with. When all the while what you have been saying is just come to me and let me clean you. Just come to me and let me make you pure. Come to me and receive the grace that is yours in my son, Jesus. And then, Lord, you change us. You're the one who changes us from the inside out. We don't do that. You do it. And so God, would you bless this time now? Would you make it a sweet time of fellowship with you as we remember the cross? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.